welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, and here is my co-host, Stefan Allen. Hello. This episode, we are covering Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the latest and possibly greatest installment in the franchise. Perfecting the Mission Impossible formula, this film combines jaw-dropping stunts with a MacGuffin-based storyline where a super spy, Ethan Hunt, battles an evil AI known as The Entity, joined by a cast of new and old characters, including a mysterious thief played by Hayley Atwell. This is directed by Chris McQuarrie, Tom Cruise's bestie and creative partner of the past decade. We also have past episodes on Top Gun, the new one, and uh, I believe Top Gun, the old one, and also the last Mission Impossible film, Fallout with Morgan, so you can go find all those in our archives or the show notes for this episode. Um, so, Stefan, did you enjoy this film? I loved this film. I had such a blast. Me too. <laughs> Incredible. The great thing about the Mission Impossible franchise, much like James Bond, is that you can just drop in anywhere because like, the continuity is chaos, the quality is patchy, and the directorial style varies radically. So I think the first film I probably saw was like six or five. This is number seven. But in the lead up to this film, I was like, I'm going to watch some more. I've not seen two or three, which are generally regarded to be the worst two, but I did watch number one, and then I've rewatched four, five, and six, which are bangers, absolute bangers in different ways. But the first one was really interesting to me. You've seen Fallout, but have you seen any of the others? Fallout's the no, I've seen Fallout and this one. And okay, that's it. I mean you've seen you've seen the best ones basically, but like it's really interesting how much it evolves. I always love when a franchise changes a lot, and like obviously with Bond that happened because the recast actors and the franchise has been going on for like 60 years. But with Mission Impossible, the first film from the mid-90s is literally a Brian De Palma thriller. So although it was a blockbuster kind of reboot remake of this corny 1960s spy series, it feels very much like a real quote-unquote film because Brian De Palma is this like acclaimed director who has this very specific style. And then he was like, I'm not coming back for sequels because he was too classy. And then it kind of has this two-film long period of doldrums before they regain their power as a franchise and it becomes this like amazing chart-topping action series. But like there's so much evolution and I feel like this film really perfected what they're trying to do. And by they, I mean Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie, who are like the headliners of this, because it combines real in-person action stunts with this real sense of comedy that I think was very much less visible in Fallout. And they're clearly kind of putting that more into the foreground with this one. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Having read uh, a big interview with Chris McQuarrie, it's really interesting hearing him describe both his process and sort of what he's going for. And yeah, it really feels like this is the culmination. Like he was asked the question, if people were to watch exactly one of your movies and they've never seen your work before, what would you pick? And obviously Macquarie has such a such a huge back catalogue of incredibly popular... Oh, he has a popular... huge back catalogue of mostly terrible films. Yeah. <laughs> He's like a screenwriter who's been working since the 90s and um, his kind of big breakout film was The Usual Suspects in 1995, which obviously is a great film. And then for most of his career, he has made big but bad films. Um, he's mostly written but occasionally directed. But crucially, he wrote the screenplay for the historical film Valkyrie with Brian Singer, one of his other previous longtime collaborators, Yug. <laughs> um, and that was the point where he and Tom Cruise basically started their creative partnership. He then wrote and directed Jack Reacher in 2012 and then Edge of Tomorrow in 2014, which actually is a good movie. And then he came in to Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which is the point where he was kind of called in to like essentially rescue the franchise. Mm -hmm. He also did some rewrites on the previous Mission Impossible film, which is the one where the studio was like trying to get rid of Tom Cruise and replace him with Jeremy Reiner, which is like such an absurd concept now, because like, first of all, you watch the film and you're like, there is no way in a million years that Jeremy Reiner can carry this. And secondly, now we're a completely different period of the Tom Cruise PR cycle, because I was like, wow, why are they trying to do this? And then I looked back at the timeline and I was like, oh, right, this was peak Scientology Tom Cruise, when everyone mm. was like, much more conscious and critical of the fact that he is the face of an evil cult, whereas now we've all just been like, shrug. Yeah. But yeah, he and Cruz are in each other's pockets, basically. 
And this is pretty much what Tom Cruise does with all his time now. Like he makes one massive, incredible action film every 18 months. And he and Macquarie share this obsessive love of classic cinema. Like Tom Cruise is famous for being this very intense cinephile who often watches like multiple films a day and watches every new film that comes out. And there's a lot of kind of old slapstick comedy Buster Keaton stuff going on in this film particularly, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. The tightness of the the action set pieces. Because I'm not a huge action movie person really, but the thing that's really striking to me about this film is how easy it is to constantly follow the action. You're never lost. And I think that's really, really hard to pull off. And I think part of that is that Buster Keaton thing of it's not hard to follow the action because it's so much fun to follow it. You love it. Like, it's so smooth and one thing sort of bleeds into the next in a really pleasing and often quite funny way. Yeah, and also just the characterization of Ethan Hunt because before this, I I loved the two Mission Impossible films I'd seen, but I kind of thought of Ethan Hunt as just this cipher. Like, he's kind of this generic character. But having watched several in a row, I'm like, this is a fucking incredible performance. This is mm. This is a man at the top of his game because... First of all, like he's a lot more interesting to me than Bond. I feel like they've created this great kind of psychological through line for him where his level of kind of obsessive intensity, which is basically Tom Cruise's own personality, and also his self-sacrificing nature seems so much more extreme and also real than the vast majority of action heroes where that is obviously their defining personality traits. Like, to me, he feels a lot more effective as a superhero than most superheroes right now because he's got this Superman-like personality trait of just being willing to do anything to save anyone, which is kind of missing from a lot of the Marvel films, which don't really have... They don't have that sort of moral superhero core. It's more like their adventure movies now, which is fine, but, like, that's very present in this. And also that comes with a very kind of comedic fallibility because there's so many stunts and action sequences throughout the franchise where you see Ethan Hunt being really exasperated with the position he's in, you know? The big iconic stunt from this movie, which is the one that like they marketed the whole film on, is when he jumps off the big mountain on a motorbike. And the part preceding that is Ethan Hunt seeing the cliff and being like, oh God, no. (laughs) And like in Fallout, there's this huge sequence where he has to drive a helicopter and he's like, shit, I can't drive a helicopter, you know. So it's like, there's this willingness for the character to fuck up and do slapstick disastrous pratfalls that makes him so much more effective. Yeah, it's interesting to compare it to, to especially sort of Marvel style action heroes, but kind of a lot of action heroes are the opposite of this at the minute, where... The reason they can't be intense and self-sacrificing is because so many current action heroes are in that sort of Joss Whedon mold of being a bit ironic and detached. And Yeah, they're not sincere. Yeah. And the thing is, Ethan Hunt is a funny character, but that's not because Ethan Hunt does a zinger. You know, it's not that typical thing of, you know, the line he has isn't, Oh hell no! Like it might be in a in a cool sort of trendy modern action film. Ethan Hunt is absolutely looking at that cliff, very earnestly going, "This isn't possible. I don't like this." <laughs> <laughs> and it's really charming. I think I I really I think I'm going to talk a lot about humor in this film. I'm really interested in the ways in which it's funny, and also the ways in which it chooses not to be funny. I do stand up comedy, and a thing you learn very quickly in stand up is. People laugh more if they like you. It's so important to be likable. And I think Ethan Hunt is incredibly... He's an incredibly likable hero. Like, much more so, I think, than the more ironic Zinger action heroes. And so much of that is... is, In fact, I would say almost all of it is Cruz's performance rather than anything in the script. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's charisma and having crafted this character very precisely for himself and around himself... As I was saying, like, he basically only does this now. Yeah, in the past, like, six years, the only films he's done are Mission Impossible and Top Gun, which are Tom Cruise-branded franchises where he has a massive amount of creative control. You could definitely make the argument that he is the co-director of these films. He is putting a lot of his own 
control over how the stunts are choreographed and how the the story is written like there's this great interview with Chris McQuarrie we'll talk about later where he talks about the rather odd creative process for this film but it's this thing where partially it's like he's doing it because like he loves cinema and his his whole brand now is like I'm saving movies Hmm. I am making the biggest films of all time and this is perfectly authentic stunts in the era of shit CGI but they also work as extremely effective kind of Tom Cruise propaganda. Because I think if he was doing more edgy, dramatic roles and things with more kind of psychological complexity, it would invite people to think more about who Tom Cruise is as a person and like the potentially negative impacts he's had on Hollywood. Whereas this is sort of channeling his deeply disturbing levels of intensity and putting them into something where it works perfectly because like famously one of the like big early Tom Cruise anecdotes is that he literally inspired the performance of Christian Bale in American Psycho (laughs) and you see that attitude in interviews with him I think he's turned a corner in his life as well like in the past decade or so but also he's channeling all of that intensity into a character whose entire motivation is like, I'm going to save every last person on earth. The more Mission Impossible films you watch, the more authentic that feels because you see how much genuine grief the character feels for characters he's lost earlier on. Yeah. Which is honestly quite impressive considering the number of women this franchise has killed off, which is one of the most annoying habits in this style of film. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I've only seen two of these films, but... He has just like a never-ending conveyor belt of like brunettes who either vanish into the ether or die. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to talk about the plot? Because I feel like I've been talking a lot. Okay, I'll talk about the plot. So, the idea of this film is that... It's sort of a chase for a key, and the key is in two halves, is the idea. You need uh, two halves of these key, you slot it together, and when you do, you can open a thing. And what the thing is, is evil AI, which is housed in this particular unit, and the AI has made its way out there, It's, it's using the internet, and so what we have is sort of a chase. We have... Every world power wants to get hold of this AI because they can use it to control the world. Ethan Hunt and his friends want to get access to this AI to kill it, to delete it, because they don't think anyone should have the power of this artificial intelligence. But also, the artificial intelligence itself is an agent here. It wants to live, it wants to survive, it doesn't want to be controlled. And so it's doing its own stuff, and yeah, it has humans working for it. So we just have loads of people trying to chase the key. <laughs> I mean, it's an absolute classic MacGuffin storyline where yeah. it's like, we've got to get the flash drive, which is like 90% of all Mission Impossible plots. And whenever I saw anyone complaining about this, I was like, you have come to the wrong house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The plot doesn't hugely matter, except insofar as it is a thing on which to hang action sequences and intense conversations. But it is interesting, and it's interesting seeing seeing the film tackle AI. Again, this is something Macquarie talks about in his interview, where he says, you know, there was a time where you would do a Cold War movie because every audience member would know what the Cold War was. You don't need to establish or explain it. What's the modern equivalent? And he reckons that that's AI, that all of us are sort of vaguely aware at least of the threat of... Uh, of emergent technologies and that we bring those anxieties into the film with us. And, you know, I think that is true. But also the portrayal of the AI in this film is not terribly different from the way an evil supercomputer would have been portrayed in, like, 60s Doctor Who or Star Trek. Yes. I mean, I think it's pretty effective. Like, it's it's silly and blockbustery. You know, they've got this big, like, light show to portray the entity. But the timing is perfect. And for that reason, it really worked for me. I was like, I genuinely feel like this is a threat. And that's partly because of the performances you've got from the heroes. But also, you know, they started developing this film in 2018. This Christopher McQuarrie interview is hair raising because the way he describes the creative process is something which 99% of the time would result in the world's worst, most incoherent film. Because he writes like a 30 page treatment 
and then goes location scouting. And because it was such a like tight turnaround, he basically did both things at once. So he was like trying to figure out what places would be cool to do stunts. The answer is places where you get tax breaks, which is why this film and the new Fast and Furious both have action sequences in Italy. Uh-huh. Uh, so he's doing that and doing like a 30 page treatment. And then they basically film with like, technically it does have a script, but the script is very malleable and they clearly let Tom Cruise and Hayley Atwell improv a lot and the most important thing is choreographing the stunts very precisely but even then because Tom Cruise is so experienced in this he can like turn on a dime and change stuff to make sure it's working so it's like this wild creative process and that's sort of perfect for a story that's just about like chasing after this key which does in the end work because right now it's arrived five years later after they wrote the original idea at a time when everyone is like very specifically alarmed about AI. And obviously it's not literally the same kind of AI because it's not an artificial intelligence like here's an evil supercomputer. But the way they've portrayed this supercomputer reflects what we think of as AI because it's kind of this thing that's like surveilling everyone and copying everything and is this danger to individuality and creativity. So on a metaphorical level, it's perfect for Tom Cruise's own obsessive hatred of fake movies and love of real movies. Yeah. There's a sequence early on, which is a sort of classic Mission Impossible bomb diffusing scene. But that's the point where I was really won over because the way in which they incorporate the threat of AI to make this otherwise very classic bomb sequence, fresh and new, is so great, I think. I like, mean, I think we can spoil that detail because it's like okay. in the first act of the film and most people, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about real spoilers later, but it's essentially like one of those capture posts when you look at a website where it's like asking you to identify stuff and it's data gathering about Simon Pegg's character, Benji. So he has to answer these questions accurately and then if he answers them correctly, he reveals information about himself, which will make him easier to replicate and trick by the AI itself, which is just like such a smart idea. Yeah. So first of all, even without the AI concept, the idea is Simon Pegg's got this bomb to defuse and he opens up the bomb and inside is like an escape room style puzzle. Yes. <laughs> which is already brilliant, I think. I mean, it feels very rooted in like the 1960s show, which I've never seen, but I can understand the vibe because I've seen The Man from Uncle in Star Trek. <laughs> yes, yes. So this is intercut with what Ethan Hawke is doing at the time, which is a lot more showy. You know, he's sort of running around the airport with Hayley Atwell and being chased by various people. And then we're cutting back to Simon Pegg, you know, looking at this bomb. So, like, that works quite well. And there's just a really nice bit where there's a puzzle he cannot answer. And so, oh, Luther, that character. Um, What's his actor's name? Ving Rhames. A man with the coolest name ever that you don't realise is actually Irving. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that's nice. So Ving Rhames' character, he doesn't want Tom Cruise to know that there's a bomb about to go off. So he's trying to like keep these two things quite separate. But then he eventually has to ask Ethan, hey, do you know the answer to this riddle? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> While Ethan Hunt is sort of walking through a through an airport pretending to be normal and he's also like hey off the top of your head you know what goes up a chimney down a chimney or whatever like, he's like what what are you talking about so that is really really fun but the idea is that these riddles that allow you to get to the next phase of defusing the bomb are intercut with questions that are basically like data harvesting questions like are you scared of death you know their questions like what is most important to you because the ai is trying to learn it's trying to learn about simon pegg's character you know i don't think simon pegg is the world's greatest actor but i think he really pulls off this sequence of him just being in real distress about like realizing this is what it takes to defuse the bomb but i do not want to give this ai any information about me and and that being quite a distressing thing and i think that's a very relatable moment weirdly because you know if we want to participate in society we often need to sign up to websites and give them the right to use our data and like we don't want them to do that but some websites you cannot sign up to without consenting to handing over a certain amount of information And it's never being used for good stuff. (laughs) Even though it's often incredibly silly, there is stuff here that really speaks to today, I think. Yeah. 
And they've really nailed the dynamic between Ethan Hunt and the characters played by Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames, who are the most long-running side characters now. Like, Ving Rhames is in the first film, and clearly Tom Cruise must love him. Uh, they, mm. <laughs> the characters, basically, Ving Rhames' actual job is delivering all the exposition and being Ethan Hunt's best friend in the whole world who he loves a lot and they both just love each other. One of the best comments I saw about this was some tweet that was like, you can tell how much Tom Cruise loves Ving Rhames because he's like, you can keep coming into these films and you just have to sit down the whole time. You will sit down, film this scene and get a $10 million and go home. (laughs) (laughs) And Simon Pegg has also been welcomed into the fold of very short actors starring in this franchise. He has been in this franchise for many films and his job is to be the guy who's sort of panicking and also there's this sort of running bit where he just doesn't realize how scary and terrifying the stunt is that tom cruise has just done where he's like oh you're gonna jump off this cliff like no big deal i'm sure you could do it and it's like he's just sitting in a car somewhere completely fine yeah it's a nice idea that because simon pegg's character doesn't really do stunts to him all stunts are equally yes difficult Two stunts that are to Ethan Hunt. One is just just a normal day, and the other is the hardest thing he's ever done. And Simon Pegg's character looks at both of those and goes, well, both of those are impossible. How am I meant to know? <laughs> it's like the most Simon Pegg's character can do is correctly shoot a gun. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, God, the ensemble cast in this is so massive, and the casting is truly a delight. The one that really confused me at first was... The primary antagonist, like the the human agent of the entity, is Gabriel Issei Morales, who is a contemporary of Tom Cruise. And there's flashbacks that kind of show their origins. So like this flashback where, of course, a brunette woman dies. Tom Cruise ends up being, you know, arrested for some kind of crime, possibly blamed for this woman's death. It's sort of ambiguous, or I don't remember. But that kind of is now retconned to be the origin story for how Ethan joined the IMF, the Impossible Mission Force, as it's absurdly named. (laughs) So they're now making it that like, oh, everyone is recruited because they're like a criminal and you can vanish them from society and make them a secret agent, which I don't think was part of the narrative before then. But I fully assumed that these flashbacks were from one of the earlier films I've not seen. And they are just an incredibly effective de-aging, which means that there's not very much close-ups and it's all in the dark. So you're just like, yeah, this does look like young Tom Cruise and young Issa Morales. But he is this fantastic antagonist. He's very fun. And he has a sidekick played by Pom Clementieff, who most viewers will recognize from playing one of the funny little aliens in Guardians of the Galaxy. And she fucking rules. She's so, so good. She's so good. You can tell that she's absolutely hilarious in interviews. Like, she's so funny. Go to her Wikipedia page. She's classically trained. She has had a very eventful life uh, already. And um, this is such a cool breakout role for her. I did read an interesting critique of that role in The Guardian by a writer named Anne Lee that basically is kind of criticising this role as a silent Asian stereotype. So like there's loads and loads of films where there's an Asian character, but they basically get little to no dialogue and they're very enigmatic and mysterious. And that definitely is a problematic trope. Yeah. Especially in a franchise like this where like almost all of the consequential characters are white people. Yes. But at the same time, it's like a colossally impressive breakout role where there also is this long history of having like a cool sidekick or goon to the villain in lots of films like this. And it's not really a dialogue role. It's a role that's kind of based on them having a cool outfit or having great action sequences. And I think she really just delivers this incredibly powerful performance because like in this big car chase sequence they have in Italy with Hayley Atwell and Tom Cruise, she's the one chasing after them. And you can see her have this like kind of animalistic snarl in the car where she like really seems like she is an extension of the car. She has this massive, massive truck while they're in this like piddly little yellow car. (laughs) (laughs) She seems so dangerous and cool. She has this really distinctive kind of punk influenced look. It's just so much more impactful than having some random guy in a car, which is what almost every other film has. It just made her a star to me. I was like, I can't wait to see her in more stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree. So I love her anyway. I do love her in Guardians of the Galaxy. I think there as well she takes a character and brings so much more to it than is there on the page and in this film yeah i think we absolutely can acknowledge how problematic the trope is and how tired it is while also celebrating just how brilliantly she 
does something fascinating with what's there. The facial expressions she pulls, because that's the thing, a mostly silent role, that is how interesting that role is depends so much on how well the performer can use their face. And she just uses her face so brilliantly. You're right about the snarls. But every, every time you look at her, she's finding something new to do that's just... Your eyes are glued to her when she's on the screen. She's phenomenal. Yeah. I think also like part of that is like the lack of vanity. I'm sure that's like both her and the film itself, because there's a lot of mainstream movies are very keen to just make women look kind of pretty, mm. you know? And there's also like a lot of resistance to like mobile faces, which is crucial to comedy. Mm. And obviously like everyone who works on any film is always like talking up their co-stars. But I do find it interesting that so many people who worked on this film and so many people who worked on Guardians of the Galaxy have like specifically singled her out as someone they think is incredibly talented and kind of just hasn't popped off yet. Yeah. But we should also talk about Hayley Atwell and Rebecca (gasps) Ferguson. Okay, let's talk about Rebecca Ferguson first. (laughs) So I love both of these women. I have become a Rebecca Ferguson stan (laughs) over the past few weeks, I think. I mean, right now she's starring in the entertaining but very silly sci-fi drama Silo on uh, Apple TV, which I've watched several episodes of, and it's conceptually nonsense, but incredibly entertaining. And she also is the mum in Dune, which is not a mum role, it is a great role. Mm. And in real life, she is captivating. She is unbelievably charming, has a kind of vampiric vibe. She is really the best female lead I've seen in the Mission Impossible franchise. Hayley Atwell, as we'll say in a minute, is like incredible in this and I fucking love her. But she has been in three films now and she is this sort of enigmatic figure who is sometimes somewhat of an antagonist to the IMF, but has this very intense entanglement with Ethan Hunt. And as Morgan and I have discussed on previous episodes about Tom Cruise, and indeed me and Claire in the uh, more recent episode that we did on Eyes Wide Shut, he's gone through this interesting career transition where he did loads of dramatic roles and loads of romantic roles and loads of horny roles earlier in his career and is extremely sexless in his current era. There's a really visible resistance to any sort of explicit romantic stuff going on. In Top Gun, there's this absurd love scene where it's like as chaste as something you'd see in 1938, possibly more so, you know? (laughs) In this franchise, there is this really intense relationship between Ethan and Ilsa, but they barely kiss. Yeah. Having watched several films, I'm like, there was so much happening in those performances. I was like, they are literally soulmates. I fully am like, they are soulmates. This is the most important relationship I've ever seen. (laughs) And it's just because of like the way the body language they have together and like the obsessiveness. And she really matches his intensity in a way that is extremely rare in a Tom Cruise co-star for obvious reasons. Yeah, I think there is a thing that happens in cinema, especially this type of cinema where it is a blockbuster. We're not thinking about feelings. It's like an extra thing. And I think this is true about sex and death. It's very hard for sex or death to feel truly meaningful in a movie of this genre that is made in this way. I think a lot of people talk about watching, whether it's the latest Marvel movie or whatever, that might have a character death in it, and you just don't feel it. It doesn't feel like a real death. It takes you out of the movie almost, because you're now thinking about what decision was made in a boardroom that was like, no, yes, we can kill that person off. They're not so important to the franchise. And yes, I suppose the the value of a shocking death does outweigh the the value of the increased presence of this actor. Do you know what? Their contract's up anyway. You know, there's like a disconnect. And I think romance can work in the same way, where how many action films have we seen where the romance is just like, I don't believe a word of this. I just think, I just think then the writer typed out and then they kiss and then they wake up the next day in bed together. I don't feel it. Whereas here, even though we're not seeing, maybe slightly because we're not seeing sex and kissing, the love story has to be conveyed in a different way. And therefore it feels real. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I saw a really interesting interview with, Tom Cruise about Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, which is the one where they introduce Ilsa, which has this absolutely incredible 
sequence at the opera. There's like four separate snipers and Rebecca Ferguson is wearing this beautiful dress and Ethan Hunt is having to infiltrate the opera. It's, you know, it's it's one of your classic action sequences. Mm. But the way that Tom Cruise described this is that it's following every beat of a romantic sort of meet cute and then a first date. So structurally speaking, it's a romance, even though that's not necessarily what it is textually and she is not described as a love interest. And that's why it's so much more effective, I think. They don't really put a label on their relationship, but like we do kind of know that she's his partner by this point. Yeah. Which makes Hayley Atwell a really interesting addition because like they also have incredible chemistry. Also, side note, this franchise absolutely understands the chemistry. This is one of the old yeah. school Hollywood elements Macquarie and Tom Cruise get. And it's something that's very absent from a lot of current casting where like you'll hear so many stories about actors getting cast because they have like 10 million followers on Instagram, which is how um, Sophie Turner got cast as um, Jean Grey in the X-Men franchise. And like, obviously I really respect her as an actress. Like she's great. Those films are shit. But like that kind of casting is not based in anything artistic or meaningful. (laughs) There is a reason why people in the film industry still do chemistry reads, even if they're clearly ignoring them. And if you did chemistry reads, there would not be any more Chris Pratt films, you know? Whereas in this, you've got Hayley Atwell, who is this absolute powerhouse. You know, I I love her. I'd love to see her on stage because apparently she's given some incredible stage performances. And that's part of the reason why she got this role. Macquarie saw her on stage like a decade ago and remembered her and was like, one day I'll find a role for you. She's primarily known for the Marvel franchise playing Peggy Carter, an incredible role that she really made her own. I still think she's like one of the standout performances because like it's hard to get your own personality through in that stuff. And as someone who has been kind of reading and watching interviews with her for like a decade now, I can really understand how she got this role and kind of powered through because she has this incredible level of confidence and all of the kind of conversations about her role in this is like her being like, I will do every stunt. I am going to like match up to Tom Cruise and we're going to improv together. And it's like, yeah, I mean, most people are not able to do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I love Hayley Atwell. She's so good. She's so talented. Her screen presence is unbelievable. She is so charming and warm and has this fascinating energy. She just brings something to every line. Something I do want to talk about a bit is the dialogue in this film. Because we've raved about loads of stuff here and we've, you know, we've we've touched on the odd criticism. But now I want to say something that is just unambiguously negative. The dialogue in this is shit. <laughs> it's just all very functional. It's not there to do anything really other than to How kind dare of you say I mean, that about a film where Shea Wiggum describes Ethan Hunt as a shape-shifting, mind-reading agent of chaos. Okay, that is good. I do like that line, yeah. <laughs> Actually, every so often there does come along a line where you're like, oh, okay, I would say hello. this film is absolutely full of bangers. It's also full of lines where someone is like, oh no, a car is coming, which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Stuart Lee joke that I really love, British comedian Stuart Lee, who like talks about Dan Brown's novels and claims that Dan Brown writes sentences like, the famous man looked at the red cup. Oh, genuinely. 100% that is what his books are like. (laughs) And I think there's a lot of that sort of thing here. Very little of the dialogue is like broken or terrible. Also, Stefan, it's almost like they didn't have a script. Almost like they had made the action sequences and then tailored the dialogue (laughs) to explain the best thing to like get you around the correct turn in the log flume of excitement. (laughs) Yeah, that made so much more sense to me. I'm now going to share my pettiest gripe. This does not matter, except to me. (laughs) There's a joke in it. I'm a spoiler for a joke early in the movie. The nature of it is it's just the core three and they are talking about how Look, the mission we want to do is we want to steal this key before the US government gets it. So even having this conversation is an act of treason. And Simon Pegg's line is, or as we call it, Monday. And like, uh, you know, obviously that is an old joke. You've heard that joke a thousand times in a thousand different things. The one Marvel line in the film. (laughs) Yeah, it is the one Marvel line. And actually, my heart sank because I was like, oh no, is it all going to be like this? And it is pretty much the only joke that's like that. But it annoys me, not only because it's like a line that's been done to death, but also because Monday isn't the day you choose for that joke. The punchline to that joke is either Thursday or, failing that, Tuesday or at a push, Wednesday. (laughs) 
Because the reason that joke works is because, oh my God, are we actually having a conversation that's treasonous? Yeah. Or as we call it, Thursday, because it's just a normal day. But Monday isn't a normal day. Monday is evocative. Monday is your first day back at work. So, like, the joke just functionally, like, why would you talk about that on a Monday when you're tired after the weekend and you're grumpy to be back in? Oh, I guess I'll have a treasonous conversation. They know that that joke is a joke. They have heard it in other things. Let's put it in here. But they have not understood why the joke works and they have picked the wrong day. And it doesn't matter, but it annoyed me. And it's a very minor thing. There we go. That's me being very valid. Exactly glad, to, glad to have given you a platform for this. <laughs> it's about time I was heard on this. Whereas the rest of it is just like, it's just nothing. It's like something out of 24. It's just these lines serve the purpose that they serve, and that is all. However, there is one line in this movie that Hayley Atwell delivers, and it is just a very, very functional line. But she has this just shockingly vulnerable delivery of it that is so out of nowhere in uh, like emotionally in the scene but is completely logical for the character that she's created that it actually made me well up in the cinema the power of Hayley Atwell <laughs> just how much characterization she's bringing to just very functional dialogue is she's she's so good because there's depth to her because she find you know she approaches different lines with different ways you know she is a contradictory character in a way that all human beings are you know there is clearly a part of her that wants to stick with these ab like one of the things i love is one of the things keeping her with ethan hunt is that she finds him fascinating like in the in the airport scene you know they are antagonists they're on different sides you know, she should just want to get away. She does just want to get away. She keeps trying to get away. But there is also a part of her that's like, who is this man? <laughs> like, it's so fast, you know. This is the interesting thing about her character, right? Because like everyone else in this film and indeed in all Mission Impossible films are basically part of the same world of spies and international arms dealers and people of that type who are in this kind of criminal slash governmental underworld where they have very dangerous jobs and they are either driven by patriotic loyalty or by a desire to save the world or by a desire to be an evil supervillain who takes over the world right and Hayley Atwell's character Grace is not that she is a thief and the only reason she's involved in this is because she at one point has one of these keys that the IMF wants and that's kind of the the reason why this airport sequence takes place because Ethan is trying to get this key from her and then they end up as sort of unlikely partners and that's kind of what drives them throughout the rest of the film. But for about half the film, she has no reason to be involved in this apart from the coincidence of being stuck with this key and not realising how important it is. And also, she is a very different kind of character because, you know, as you say, she's motivated by a desire to like find something interesting to do. She's also textually and like motivated by a desire to get money and get jewels you know like a classic thief which is another one of the parts of her character that feels very rooted in sort of early 20th century american films but also she's not an action hero like she doesn't really have any physical skills all of her skills are just to do with being a sneaky little pickpocket and stuff so when it comes to an actual fight she is terrified and disturbed and when it comes to this big car chase she is panicking in a very reasonable way and that's something i really like to see in a film of this type and it sucks if it's a film where there's one man and one woman and the woman is just like damseling around, but she's not damseling around and there's like four other women in the film, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, she's not damseling around. She feels much more like a point of view character. Yeah, because she's the only normal person in the film, basically. Yeah. Can I tell you my favourite joke? Okay. Because I feel like you have missed out on a crucial joke, which I found hysterically funny and very surprising for this film, which is the during this amazing car chase sequence there's a point where the car just like doesn't start and she very kindly and subtly is like it's all right it happens to everyone and it's like clearly a boner joke where yes. it's like an erectile dysfunction joke and i was like oh my god <laughs> and it's delivered in her like very plummy english accent and i was just like this is perfectly delivered <laughs> yeah that is that was good <laughs> yeah i forgot about that that and also like the absolutely classic visual joke of um 
Shea Wiggum has this great side role as a US government agent who is just perpetually three steps behind the IMF. He is like trying to arrest Ethan for the entire film and is always showing up like, you know, late with Starbucks. It's so funny. Um, But like there's this point where he's kind of like, where's Hunt? I can't see him anywhere. And you can see like Tom Cruise's iconically distinctive run right behind him, like over his shoulder outlined against the sky. And it's just hysterical. (laughs) (laughs) Again, this is the nice thing about having this type of MacGuffin plot where there's just way too many people chasing this key. But while most people are chasing the key, Shea Wiggum is specifically chasing Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hunt! (laughs) There's just a really funny bit where he finally finds Ethan and then Pom Clementy F turns up in a massive car and is just like, no, sorry, sorry, Wiggum, you're not. <laughs> this isn't your scene. He's like bulldozing everyone. <laughs> There's big Mad Max energy happening here. You don't get to quietly arrest Tom Cruise. <laughs> you're going to have to wait your turn. You're going to have to wait until this massive sequence is done. Do you know what it reminds me of? Wacky Races. Yes. It's very much like Wacky Races because Pom's character is like, got her little face paint outfit. She's got her sort of military inspired jacket and it's very kind of pop punk because during the car chase sequence where she's in this gigantic sort of Range Rover thing, she's wearing this little tartan mini dress, (laughs) like a little mini skirt, (laughs) um, which is very in contrast with the other female leads where there are so many women in suits in this, which is interesting. They've clearly decided to double down on that. So there's loads of scenes where... Hayley Atwell or Rebecca Ferguson are wearing women's wear, men's wear, and look gorgeous, of course. Yeah. But I think we should talk about spoilers now. There's one really big spoiler Yeah. about Rebecca Ferguson's character, Elsa Faust, which is, in my view, scandalous, although I still think the film is a masterpiece, which is that toward the beginning of the film, she is killed off, but it's a fake out. And then she actually is killed off toward the end, kind of before the big final act sequence. So... You know, there's this scene where Ethan Hunt is given a choice to save Haley or save Rebecca. And obviously he doesn't choose between them, but he is fooled by the AI into not getting there in time to save Elsa, who like has a sword duel, which is delightful, with the villain played by Issa Morales, Gabriel, and is stabbed and dies. And I mean, some people are still hoping that she's going to turn out to be alive in the next film, but... I was like pretty shocked by this because like it feels like they've fridged so many women here already. His wife is technically alive, but like she serves that purpose in the narrative, you know. Yeah. You don't need to kill off this many characters. And I can genuinely only think that like the two options here are Tom Cruise didn't want to be like jockeying for position for a lead role, which is like absurd because it seems like they have a very good relationship. Yeah. Or she was just like, I want out, or she's too busy with like the Dune sequel. Yeah. It's really surprising. I'm like, why would you why would you get rid of her? Like she's such a great character. It's such a great performance. She seems integral. Like it would, if anything, be more effective to kill off Simon Pegg's character. Like fucking yes. kill him off. Yeah. I felt exactly the same way. I dislike this death very, very much. It connects with what I was saying earlier. It doesn't feel like a death. I didn't mourn her within the fiction of the thing. I wasn't like, oh no. It didn't feel like a sort of natural thing. It took me out of it. And now I'm just thinking about all the creative decisions that went into deciding this. Well, I think that's also partly a structural thing. Because like, I fully buy into, as I say, the relationship between Elsa and Ethan. And like, I really did feel like afterwards, I was like, wow, this really is a meaningful death to him afterwards. And I was very invested in a way that like, I wouldn't be in a lot of films of this type. But then because of the way the film is structured, you're then launched into the final action sequence. So your emotional cues are just switching back into action adventure. Yeah. So it kind of cuts off the feeling that you're meant to have for this really beloved character. My issue is bigger than that, I think. It's not about what comes after, but what comes before, which is Rebecca Ferguson doesn't have that much to do in this film, really. The sword fight is cool, but it's the thing in which she dies. Like, I would mind it a lot less... If there was an element of, like, the choice of sacrifice, if she's sacrificing herself for a cause here. She saves Hayley Atwell's character, and that's how they frame it. That Oh, that's true, actually, yeah. Her death is directly framed as her saving Hayley Atwell's life, and then Hayley Atwell has mixed feelings about this because she was a stranger. I mean, yeah. the interesting thing, and I think it speaks very highly of Rebecca Ferguson, is that while she is, like, technically the female lead of the last three and arguably the most prominent of the Mission Impossible films, she actually doesn't have very much screen time in any of them. Mm. Because I watched all three of these and like, 
she has extremely effective screen time in Rogue Nation, where she is fourth build, I think, in the cast. Yeah. And she's wonderful in it, but she has kind of two big action sequences and some other scenes. And then when I rewatched Fallout, which is tremendous, the two things I noticed were, actually, Elsa's not in this as much as I remember. And also it's not very funny, which mm. it has, I mean, it has humor in it, but like, it's not as funny as this film. And then in this film, the female lead is like very explicitly Hayley Atwell, who's doing an amazing job. So like all the way through, Elsa has made this massive impact emotionally and in terms of just Rebecca Ferguson's screen presence. But like, she's never been the co-lead. Mm, mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think what I find so frustrating here, because you are right, the element of self-sacrifice is there. Just give her a bigger moment. I think that's my concern, I suppose, is that so much of the of the focus is on Ethan. It's Ethan discovering that she's died. So it's not her story, it's his. I think being with her as she's killed and, and being a lot more on her response... It can be a Hollywood cliche. I don't care. Like, that's fine. It's not that I'm looking for something fresh and original. I'm not expecting miracles. But I don't like that at the end here, her death isn't her story. Two minor changes I would make that I think would strengthen this is, one, have a bigger moment of her telling Hayley Atwell, run, get out. Because you're right that the note is there that she's taking one for the team, and she's specifically taking one for Hayley Atwell. But... Make that a bigger thing. Make that a hero's moment. Yeah. And the second thing I think is to just see what it is like to give your life, you know, to have more of an emphasis, both on Ferguson's performance, which is obviously amazing. So, you know, this is like, give her something meatier to do here. Because, yeah, because you can still have all the stuff of, like, mourning afterwards and the darkness of realising that you've lost someone. None of this is me speaking against a death. Although I also acknowledge that a lot of brunettes are killed in this franchise, and that's not great. <laughs> um, I want to talk about another character death at the end of this film. Actually, should we talk about what the end of this film is, the, the final train sequence? Yeah, I think we should. So I mostly managed to avoid the like trailers and clips for this. Like I obviously saw one trailer, but I was really happy to because as far as I can tell is that like if you were have access to television in America, you had seen like so much of this film before the movie came out. The center point of the marketing for this film was this one big motorbike stunt where Tom Cruise, you know, jumps off this mountain for real, which he did in real life and sounds terrifying and risked his life. And they infamously filmed it before everything else, just in case they killed Tom Cruise and had to cancel the film, <laughs> which is sensible and hilariously morbid. You know, this man does want to die while making a film. Yeah, he really does. The kind of tremendous thing about watching this film is that, like, first of all, by the time we got to that stunt, I'd had such a fucking blast that I forgot the stunt was even happening. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is happening. And then when it does happen, it's two minutes long. And you're like, wow, this was a fake out. They focused all the marketing on this stunt. So you wouldn't pay attention to the fact that there was like 50 other equally incredible action sequences. <laughs> because the final sequence is this perfect melding of everything great about Mission Impossible, which is that you have Vanessa Kirby's character who is this arms dealer, who we've not mentioned yet, but she's in the last film. And you have Hayley Atwell's character going undercover as her, which means Vanessa Kirby is playing Hayley Atwell, playing her, which is a great thing to do in a film. Love seeing that sort of thing. And she has to like do a little deal for the key with Henry Cherney's character, who is a returning character from the first film who has not been in any of the intervening films, which is like such a fun little casting thing. And then as this kind of deal is happening, because Hayley Atwell's character has no combat skills, she is like, Ethan, you have to get me off this train. I can't do this alone. I am going to agree to do this, but you've got to get on the train and save me. So there's this really high stakes ability to get onto the train, which requires Tom Cruise to jump off a mountain onto the train with a parachute because it's a runaway steam train because Tom Cruise is fucking obsessed with films from the 1930s. <laughs> and then the rest of the sequence is them trying to escape this train, which then literally drives off a cliff, which involved them building a real train and driving it off a real cliff. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Right. So I saw this with Eleanor, my wife, who didn't especially like this film. She's not really an action film person. No, I was uh, like, yeah. she wouldn't have been my first choice for this. <laughs> well, that's it, because I was going to see it. So I just texted her and was like, do you want to come? And she was like, lol, okay. And yeah, she was a lot more biting in her in her response. But we were talking about that. We were trying to work out how that train sequence was made. And I was like, I'm certain that was real because like, there's so many just little bits of that set that are being used in a way that just think they did that. And I'm not as anti-CGI as I think a lot of film people are. But 
you know, there are so many strengths to doing a practical effect, especially for an actor. I I think that's where I do think CGI is often problematic, is where you don't think about the options you are shutting down for your actors. Yeah, I mean, the problems are when it doesn't work because it doesn't look real, and behind the scenes, the fact that the vast majority of Hollywood CGI is done by like underpaid contractors at separate workplaces who have no idea what the film's meant to look like. So it's bad quality rather than the concept of CGI in general. First of all, they did drive the train off a cliff. And also there's this extensive sequence at the end where Tom Cruise and Hayley Atwell are having to climb up a series of vertical train cars that are like f- gradually falling off the cliff, which is absolutely incredible and they did this by having a train car that was like on a gimbal in the studio that they were shaking around and they were both having to climb up it inside with like a drop underneath like on wires obviously so you know there's a sequence where there's a piano that's going to fall on them Mm. which, which once again very 1930s and one of the funniest visual jokes to me in the whole movie was when they've climbed up like three of these fucking train cars And they get to one which looks like it's just about safe because it's not fallen off the cliff yet. And it's the kitchen car and the whole thing is full of like flames and there's oil (laughs) on the floor and there's like 10 million different kinds of peril there. And I was just like in hysterics by this point. Yeah, I love that bit so much. All of this is so exciting. It's phenomenal. Like I love it. I just, I've never seen something quite like this, done this well, this elaborate And I think it's really lovely that after having all of these characters chasing the key, the final big sequence, we are just on Tom Cruise and Hayley Atwell doing really, really physical stuff in essentially just a survival scenario. Just get from point A to point B in time to survive. That's your only challenge. It's you against gravity. Yes. Everything in this film is an idea that has been around for upwards of 60 years and it's just been polished to a perfect sheen. When I saw this film, there was a child in the audience behind me and the child would occasionally laugh at a bit. But the child was about five years old, I think. So, you know, what a five-year-old laughs at isn't necessarily what the film wants you laughing at. And so half the time it was annoying because there was like a moving bit that the kids just found funny because of dissonance. But the other half was like... So there's a bit where, this is before the train has started crashing, Hayley Atwell is like trying to hold her own in a fight that she clearly cannot win. She doesn't have the training for it. And we know that Tom Cruise has finally motorbiked his way off that cliff and he's got a parachute and he just needs to land on the train. And what happens is he just crashes through a window. Like, <laughs> it's <laughs> so funny. And the child laughed and it was, and it's just absolutely one of my top 10 all-time cinema moments is that kid being delighted by Tom Cruise just crashing into a scene. I mean, this is such a funny moment as well because like, he's done all this stuff and he's clearly so fucking exhausted. He's just like, I can't keep going. And it's like, he has to keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So now I want to talk about why I brought all of this up, which is the character death thing. So we get to the end and Tom Cruise is hanging onto this train for dear life. And he's also with his other arm holding on to Hayley Atwell. And it looks... And I really think it just looks physically impossible for her to... He's not going to be able to pull himself and her up. She's not going to be able to climb him. I think the film does a really good job of making it clear that, yeah, we see these people do impossible stuff, but this is a step too far. It is too impossible. You know, the real threat here is that he's going to end up dropping Hayley Atwell and she's going to fall to her death. And we're going to have another discarded brunette. And then, like, at the last minute... He is saved by Pom Clementiev, who has a last-minute turn. This is something I noticed. She has exactly the same character arc as Javert in Les Mis. <laughs> where, you know, she has a final confrontation with Ethan Hunt. And he defeats her. And her life is his to take. And he chooses not to take it. And so he leaves. And she is in an alley, furious, kind of like you know that guy i'm gonna i'm gonna get him one day but also the fight is gone like she is not who she was anymore because she doesn't understand and so uh right at the end we get her saving his life and essentially giving her life to do it she has been stabbed at this point and you know so the final act of her life is to save ethan and you know provide some information that will help him going into the sequel to this film And then she appears to die on screen. And that character death, I 
liked. I didn't like it in the sense of like, oh, but I really like that actor. I like that character. She's really charismatic. Like, I'd love her to come back. I wished that she lived. But she does live. Yeah, so she does live. But that's the thing, right? It's like, I think up until the point where we where it's confirmed that she has a pulse, I think the film plays it straight as though she's died. Yes, absolutely. So the point I wanted to make was, in that moment, I genuinely felt that death. In the way that I was quite annoyed by the death of Ilsa, here I was like, that is a satisfying death. But then, yeah, the fact that there is a line later where another character finds her and goes, oh, there's a pulse. And that's all we get, you know, we don't see her after that. That's enough, right? Like, that's enough to indicate she is alive, and so that is a playing piece that can be used in future movies if uh, need be. So that was my question to you, really. Do you reckon the plan was for her to die permanently originally, but then the performance was so great? You know, yeah, like- I was very curious about that because, like, I mean, that happens all the time as well. Like, the most famous one I can think of is Poe Dameron in Star Wars, who was meant to get killed off in the first film, and they were like, uh, no, give him a bigger role. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be remotely surprised, especially when you read about how malleable the script was during the production process. Yeah, like any hang-ups I'd had earlier in the film, I just, yeah. Actually, I do want to say some things that Eleanor said about this film. She was a lot more cynical than I was about it. Like the moment where Pom Clementiev saves Tom Cruise, like really got me going. I was so excited. My heart was pounding. And I said to Eleanor afterwards, I was so excited at that point. And she was like, yes, I could tell. (laughs) Whereas Eleanor was like, there she is, because she'd just been waiting for that all along. Like she she was not misled at all. She was Oh, look who's a little smarty (laughs) man. <laughs> but also, Eleanor said a really funny thing that I really like. Something she loves in these movies are the fact that the thing that makes these missions impossible. Actually, can I quote Danny here? I'm going to quote my favorite joke of Danny's, a mutual friend of ours. Uh, we watched Fallout together. And about 20, 30 minutes into the film, where everything's going wrong because this team is not working well together and they're making mistakes. And Danny said, I always assumed the missions were impossible because of external factors. <laughs> And uh, yeah, Eleanor's favourite moment of incompetence here is there's a bit in the airport where Tom Cruise needs to have a private conversation with Ving Rhames and he's with Hayley Atwell and he cannot allow her to get away because she's, she's a thief, but he also can't allow her to listen into the conversation. So he does the Hollywood thing of like turning 90 degrees so that she, he is facing away from her uh, so that she can't hear. She can obviously hear. She's right there. Has his conversation and then turns around and she's just gone. <laughs> It's it's very funny. I mean, one of the things that like Grace always says when we're watching a film like this or the TV show Leverage is that she's just like, it's so nice that they're all telepathic because like <laughs> we assume they're all wearing earpieces because they're constantly talking to each other. And in this one, there's a sequence where the AI hacks the earpieces, but it does very much just read like they're all psychic because yeah. it's like, where's the earpiece and how does this work? Especially when you're in the middle of like a giant gunfight. <laughs> I was re-watching a couple of years ago the 2006 series Torchwood, the, the Doctor Who spin-off, and like, they do that thing of all talking to each other, but they have these absolutely enormous earpieces. <laughs> They're so, so big. <laughs> like, it looks very funny. I am 100% sure that's because they were just like, buy whatever is at like the local car phone warehouse. <laughs> Whereas you can save so much on props by just having an actor poke their own ear with a finger and getting the special effect sound people to put a little bloop on. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess I have one final thing which I forgot to mention earlier before we wrap up, which is we didn't mention the religious imagery of the AI. Obviously also very much not a new idea, but I enjoyed greatly because you've got Gabriel, whose name is Gabriel, the Mm. archangel, who is the avatar of the entity and has got this kind of religious fervor, obsessive following. So it's like, unlike a character who is just in it for the money or whatever, it's a more kind of dangerous psychological motivation. There is also the fact that the key is the cruciform key. Mm. It is meant to look like a crucifix. And um, there's like a couple of scenes where there's like a big crucifix in the background of stuff. So this film is about Ethan Hunt killing God. Mm. That was obviously all very intentional. But the point where there was like a piece of real life subtext, which to me was highly amusing slash dark, was that... um, after Elsa's death, they explained to Hayley Atwell's character, basically, you can't live a normal life anymore. There is nowhere you can hide. Your only option is to join the IMF and forge a new identity. And that's how we all joined as well. Yeah. And 
<laughs> to me, I was just like, the way this is being presented is very much a cult pitch. Yeah. <laughs> Where Tom Cruise is like, the only two options you have are to be alone and die out there in the world or to completely abandon all the vestiges of your former life and join my insular group where I, the charismatic leader, <laughs> will risk our lives on a regular basis. But the important thing is I will be just as dedicated to you. And she is like, wow, you, you really are dedicated to me. No one is more dedicated to saving people's lives than Tom Cruise in this film. Yeah. And then their little cult goes off to kill God. And I was like, what an incredible piece of subtext to this scene. That's amazing. That's so good. <laughs> Both Tom Cruise's uh, personal life and also his attitude to building the cast of this film <laughs> and also the film itself. But on that note, great movie. I'm hoping to see it again. I enjoyed this more than Barbie or Oppenheimer. Wow. I thought Barbie was very good. Yeah. I thought Oppenheimer was mid. Mm. We will be discussing this, Claire and I, on an upcoming episode of the podcast. So... <laughs> <laughs> and I say this as someone who has enjoyed many... Christopher Nolan films, as long-time listeners will know. But yeah, I think that's us for this week, isn't it? I think so, yeah. All right. Well, in that case, as always, find show notes for this episode on overinvestedpodcast.com. Find us on Twitter at overinvestedpod, Tumblr on overinvestedpodcast, also Instagram. You can find me at gavia at bluesky, hello underscore taylor on Twitter, and also hello taylor on Letterboxd, where I log all of my films and also often review movies. Stefan, where can we find you? Mostly, I am on Twitter for now. Uh, so if you've enjoyed hearing about an evil AI trying to shape the world, why not follow me at Stalin? That's S-T-A-L-U-N. And for any listeners in Edinburgh, is there a stand-up show they should be going to? Yeah, there is. I am at the Edinburgh Festival every day from, I believe, the 3rd of August until the 27th. Uh, although there is the middle Monday, which I will be taking off. But I am on at 11.45am every day, the perfect lunchtime comedy show. And I am in the Mash House, which is like a grungy music venue. So it's very cool. Gorgeous. And I can vouch for Stefan being very funny because I've been to almost all of his shows <laughs> at the <laughs> French. So <laughs> obviously he is a full-time professional comedian in Wales, which I am missing out on, but um, he is very funny. But yeah. Okay. So um, obviously, as I said, there will be a soon upcoming episode about Oppenheimer with Claire and also another Claire episode about the 1932 pre-code drama with Marlena Dietrich, Shanghai Express, which is a gorgeous masterpiece also very train heavy. We all love a train film. So yeah. All right. See you all in the next one. Bye-bye. Goodbye.